0: Hello and welcome to A Flat Pack History of Sweden, your sat-nav through Swedish history with me, Chris, and my co-host, Orsa.
1: Yes, hello and welcome. We're going to continue our chronological journey through Swedish history. In this episode, we'll look at what happens after Karl Knudson Bunde is deposed as king of Sweden for, not the first, but a second time in early 1465.
0: Carl on Bunda or KKB, as we like to call him on the podcast, uh, he's the man that seems to be endlessly sprinkling trouble over these already troublesome decades of the 1400s and the uneasy union that Sweden is in with the other Scandinavian kingdoms. So we look forward to that. And um, there was someone on Twitter who spoke to us recently who wasn't sure how to pronounce your name because apparently we say it a bit differently, and some people seem to think I call you Elsa,
1: which you definitely don't. A- a lot of English speakers seem to think that that's my name, though it's not quite. Although I like the association with the princess and Frozen. She's called Elsa. I'm called Elsa with no L.
0: Yeah, so it's like awesome but awesome.
1: That's a good way to remember it.
0: Yeah, but you have a very strong Swedish dialect, so that's why I said maybe people think we say your name a bit differently because you have the strong L. True it's taken 90 episodes to get to us actually maybe explaining your name <laughs> but uh, hopefully it should be fine for most listeners
1: it's spelt funnily enough maybe uh, people have never done this but if you have a like english keyboard on your phone if you hold down the a symbol you will find that a bunch of other letters appear and one of them is an a with a circle above that is the first letter in my name and yeah, oh, it's an extra vowel sound present in all of the Scandinavian languages.
0: Yeah, so yeah, I think most people will uh, know that already, but we thought it was just a funny thing to mention, so we'll do that. Uh, but it's now time for veckans svenska or uh, as we call it in English, the Swedish phrase of the week.
1: This week's phrase is Visa vart skåpet ska stå. And just like last time, this phrase was suggested to us by our good friend and fellow podcaster Michael from the Scandinavian History Podcast. I actually saw him a few weeks ago when he was in Stockholm for work. Uh, It was lovely to catch up and talk about all sorts of things, history, podcasting, and so much more. So thank you, Michael, for taking the time out of your busy work schedule to uh, come see unfortunately just me because you couldn't make it
0: no i was a bit sick um or you know thought i was becoming sick so it was always good to not go and meet people Uh, so there was a few things i didn't do at work because i didn't want like the ceo to get sick and stuff like that and that also meant not make getting michael sick so uh yeah, it was uh, a common sickness that's happening around, you know, when the temperature starts to drop this time of the year in Sweden. So thought it was best to stay at home. And you didn't get a picture together. There was no evidence.
1: No, we had so much fun that we forgot to take a photo. But it definitely did happen. But back to the phrase, visa vårt sköpetsgasteo.
0: Yeah, um, that literally translates to show where the cabinet or the cupboard should go. It's mainly a phrase used by removal companies, I guess.
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess. It does have that literal meaning of showing where you want that particular item of furniture to go. But it also has a figurative meaning that's similar to the English phrase show them who's boss. Meaning being uh, decisive, giving an order and expecting people to follow. So you could say, for example, when you go into this meeting, you need to know that everyone at the company is against this proposal. But it needs to be done, so you just go in there and show them where the cupboard should go.
0: Okay, that makes sense. You're, you're the one pointing out how you want things done and, and what things sh- should happen. It's a little less straightforward than the English phrase, so them who's boss, but um, you should get the idea of how it's used.
1: And I'd say it's a phrase that's used fairly regularly in everyday speech here in Sweden. So thank you, Michael, for that great suggestion
0: indeed, but now let's pick up where we left off last time. It's the 30th of January in 1465, to be precise, and KKB has just been forced to abdicate the Swedish throne after spending less than six months on it this time. He's gone off to Finland to live off the rather generous land areas he was given there. The Swedish nobility and the peasantry have once again been engaged in both internal struggles and fighting against King Christian down in Denmark, who's still trying to rule all the three the Scandinavian kingdoms as one under the umbrella of the Kalmar Union, the Personal Union. So what's going to happen now?
1: Well, the first thing that's going to happen is that in the absence of a king, the Swedish council is going to choose a regent, a riksföreståndare, and then they're going to try and sit down with their Danish and Norwegian counterparts and see if they can once again try and put the pieces of the Kalmar Union back together. But let's look at the first bit of that first, selecting a regent.
0: Initially, Shetil Carson Vasa becomes regent. He's the Bishop of Linköping and the one that's been leading the rebellion against Queen Christian now for the last few years. If you remember from the last episode, the Archbishop of Uppsala was imprisoned by King Christian, Shetil is the one who rallied the troops and took the fight to Christian. But Shetil barely has time to order new business cards with his new title on before he dies.
1: Yeah, he was likely born in 1433, although there are no exact records of when. So he's only about our age, uh, 32 or so when he, like you said, dies in August 1465 after less than six months in the role of regent. He dies from the plague because there's currently a plague outbreak sweeping across in particularly the northern part of the country, but we'll come back to that outbreak later.
0: He's replaced in the post of regent by his ally, fellow bishop and now senior statesman, Archbishop Jöns Bengtsson Oxenförner, who's back in the game once more as regent for a second time too.
1: A solid choice for regent, you could say, since he is both the most senior figure of clerical power in Sweden and his family, the Oxenförners, are among the most powerful in the country and they have been for the last few decades. However, it's worth noting that whilst he wields a law of both church and earthly power, so to say, in Sweden, he does not control the three important castles Kalmar, Böjholm and Elfsborg, which are instead held by men loyal to King Christian. Still, a solid regent might just be what Sweden needs because Now there's going to be talks with the other Scandinavian kingdoms about the Union.
0: Like we've said so many times before when there's been revolts and uprisings and the council meet to try and piece the union together, it does seem like most people here want to maintain the union. I have no problem with the idea of a union between the Scandinavian kingdoms as such. After all, by now, none of the people present would have been alive in a time before the Kalmar Union existed. Well, you know, maybe babies, but yeah, they weren't active political figures during a pre-Kalmar Union Scandinavia. And they wanted to make sure that whatever side they represented got the most out of the Kalmar Union, and that they weren't going to be too strongly controlled by a monarch or another part of the Union that they didn't like. For the swedish nobility this basically meant that they were fine with the union just not one that was headed by king christian someone who limited their powers and used money collected in sweden for things that the swedish nobility weren't interested in or thought weren't in sweden's interests like paying off debts related to schleswig and holstein instead if they could have a king who did what they wanted to do and let them do as they pleased then they were kind of fine with the union as it was
1: Talks get underway in the winter of 1466, first in Jönköping, then in Helsingborg, a meeting that also includes King Christian himself and representatives of the border nobility. Then in the summer of 1467 they meet again in Kalmar, but all of this really fails to reach any substantial conclusions. And this is mainly because of a growing split within the Swedish nobility and, consequently, in the Swedish council.
0: This split essentially runs between the families that are the members of the border nobility and the families that are members of the Uppsvensk nobility. We've talked about the border nobility, the Grenzardeln, before – But to understand the context of this split, it's worth just repeating what we mean by that. And the nobility in general drew their power from the land. The fact that they can control land, to a certain extent tax land, and get profits from the sales of goods produced on that land. As the name suggests, the border nobility's land, and consequently all the geographical location of their power base, is in Sweden and in Denmark and Norway, around the borders of those countries, so to the south and west of uh, Sweden. The Uppsvensk nobility have a similar geographically based power base, but instead more to the east, in central and northern Sweden, the word Uppsvensk means Upper Swedish, but since state control of what today is northern Sweden was still pretty limited in the Middle Ages, when we say northern or upper Sweden, we don't mean all the way up north, but more like the counties of Upland, Dalarna, Vestmanland, and maybe in towards Jastrigsland and Helsingland. And whilst there is an eastern border of Sweden, uh, the east of what is now Finland, uh, there isn't really a border nobility over there. They're part of the Upsvensk nobility, or just unaligned.
1: Generally speaking, the border nobility is more keen on the Kalmar Union. They have stronger economic and family ties to Norway and Denmark than the Upsvensk nobility has. The border nobility has traditionally been more connected to KKB, although at times they've also been against him, whereas the Uxenfranas are definitely a representative of Uppsvensk nobility, and that's where they have their other main supporters.
0: It's also worth mentioning that the lines between the clergy and the nobility is quite blurred at this time too. In Swedish, we often talk about the andlittfrelse and verdslittfrelse, so a holy or clerical nobility and an earthly or maybe just an ordinary or normal nobility. And sometimes, like with Banks and Oxenfraner, those two types of nobility unite in the same person when he's archbishop and a member
1: of the nobility. In the autumn of 1466, the border nobility manages to swing things in their favor on the council with a bit of a power play. Jöns Bengtsson Ochsenstjärna is ousted from his position as regent and instead Erik Axelsson Tott, who is from a border nobility family, takes over the position. He's been on the council since 1451, but this is really the first time he emerges from the shadows in the records.
0: His father, Axel Perdesentort, has been an influential nobleman for years, very much in the pro-Kalmar Union ranks. The family's close connection to Denmark in the Union can be seen in how Erik's brother, who has his seat of power in Blekinge on the Danish side of the border, has been on the Danish council since the 1450s, and their half-brother Olaf was the Mask, that main military commander down in Denmark, until his death in 1464. So this is really the border no personified in this one family.
1: It's not just on the Swedish council that the Axelsson-Tott family is moving into power. Around the same time as Erik assumes the role of regent, they arrange a wedding at Nyköping's hus, their main estate. Through this wedding, the family marries into the knutsson family to form a grand alliance against the power of the Oxenstiernas and the Uppsvensk nobility. The wedding itself is between Erik's brother Ivar and KKB's daughter Magdalena.
0: At this point, listeners might find themselves asking, uh, but hang on, since when did the border nobility start liking KKB? Aren't they the ones who are most keen on the Kalmar Union? Surely then it's counterproductive to want anything to do with KKB. And yes, if you're thinking that, you'd be right. It's likely that the border nobility's long-term plan wasn't to try and reinstate KKB as a king of an independent Sweden, but rather to use the threat of KKB coming back as a card to play against King Christian. First, they wanted to stabilise the situation in Sweden so that Sweden could then show a united front against Denmark in negotiations in the Kalmar Union. Then they'd invite Christian to come back to the Swedish throne, but in a weaker position than previously, having been made to promise them uh, lots of concessions uh, to do with the Swedish council. And the way to get Christian to do this and to agree to giving them concessions was to dangle the threat of a return of KKB over his head. And if that didn't make Christian willing to play ball, then they would go and get KKB back. But again, make him promise to compromise or, you know, give them concessions or they would in turn go to Christian.
1: I mean, it's political scheming of the highest order. Whilst the on Tots and the border nobility are busy with their plans, the Swedish peasantry in the northern area of the country are feeling hmm, increasingly neglected by the council and the nobility.
0: The nobility really needs to start learning at this point that they don't want these peasants to get grumpy, because grumpy peasants easily become angry peasants, and angry peasants become rebelling peasants, especially if they're from Dalarna.
1: Yes, once again, Dalarna will be the heartland of a peasant rebellion, because during the summer of 1466, a nobleman by the name of Niels Sture, who has been a supporter of KKB since his first reign as king in the late 1440s and early 1450s, well, he is going around the county rousing the rebels, saying that they can't put up with evil King Christian from Denmark coming back, and the only thing that will save them from having to slave under a foreign king, well, that is, you guessed it, Karl Knudson Bunde.
0: By the time of autumn 1466, Neil Sturker and his band of merry, rebelling Dalarna peasants are ready to move. They attack and take over Westeros Castle, a favourite target of rebels throughout Swedish history, and from there, on the 1st of November, they write a lovely public letter in which they demand the return of KKB to the throne.
1: It's bad news for the upper Swedish nobility, who don't want KKB back and don't want to have to deal with angry peasants on their doorstep. It's bad news for King Christian down in Denmark, who, who just wants to get on with ruling Sweden as part of the Kalmar Union. And it's not great news for the border nobility either, because Christian blames them for this, accusing them of conspiring against him, aligning themselves with KKB to bring him back. Which is sort of true, or at least it's what the axelsson Tot family were potentially ready to go and do, although this is probably not quite how they wanted things to turn out.
0: No, uh Neil and the Darlana peasants sort of jumped the gun before the border nobility were really ready, uh so that's that's what's happened here. And either way, in, in as fourteen sixty six becomes fourteen sixty seven, we find that King Christian, the Oxenfaroners, and the Upsfens nobility now strangely find themselves on the same side of a conflict. And just to remind ourselves, these are the same people who just a few years ago rose up in rebellion against the king, and the king had imprisoned and their main man, Jons Banks and Oxencherna, the archbishop. But the political actors of 15th century Sweden seem to live by that famous old saying, my enemy's enemy is my friend. So faced with the threat of angry peasants and KKB returning, they join forces and begin to plan a joint attack on the border nobility and the Axelsson Tots in particular. As, you know, they've been hinting that they want KKB back. So now the peasants have taken their stand with KKB. King Christian decides to take Tot on for saying that he would want KKB back. (laughs) So it's a lot lot going on here.
1: Yeah, it's very confusing sometimes. But from his base in Denmark, King Christian blocks trade to Sweden and attacks border nobility positions on both the Swedish and Danish side of the border. The king is furious with what has formerly been his more loyal power base – but that he now thinks have betrayed him being led by Eric Axelsson Tot. if we want to give him a fun nickname like we've done with KKB should we just call him EAT or you know eat
0: <laughs> yeah eric axelsson Tot. yeah e- eat. A- a- eat 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 <laughs>
1: <laughs> Meanwhile, further north, the Uxofernas are trying to take the fight to the peasants, but either their campaign was badly planned, or they underestimated the support the rebellion would have, because their counteroffensive doesn't go very well, and in the end Jön Bengtsson Oxenstierna has to leave his home at the Archbishopric in Uppsala and flee to Öland, where Boyholm Castle is still controlled by men loyal to King Christian.
0: After a few months of this fighting in the north of the country, the peasants led by Niels Störa emerge victorious, and so then, obviously, that means that... KKB comes back.
1: Yes, he does. When he hears that his supporters are starting to emerge victorious in the north, he sails back across the Baltic Sea. On the 12th of November, 1467, he arrives in Stockholm, and once again, he's on the throne of Sweden for a third time.
0: Yeah, this is ridiculous now, isn't it? uh, How is (laughs) that? It's been able to happen that he's been kicked out twice and come back twice and, you know, became king in the first place. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's really fascinating how this is able to happen. I remember, you know, if you look sometimes when you see these like lists of kings and things, you think, oh, wow, look, that, that guy was king and then he got kicked out, but he came back and then it happens again.
1: Whenever I do research on KKB, I get that song, you know, it's in... It's out, shake it all about. I don't know if he did much shaking about, but uh, yeah, he's certainly in and out. But this time, his power base is broader than it was last time he was on the throne. Crucially, he has more support from the border nobility, because even though they might not really have wanted him back, now he is back, he's the one to lead an anti-Christian alliance.
0: Christian the king.
1: Yeah, not Christian as in Christianity. In fact, even the Uxenfuerhners sort of grudgingly fall in line and accept him after he's promised he won't retaliate against them for joining with Christian and fighting his supporters before he came back. Likely getting the Uxenfuerhners to agree with this is aided by the fact that their main man, archbishop, ex-regent, all-round statesman and former prisoner Jöns Bengtsson Oxenferner Well, he dies at Boyhorn Castle on the 15th of December, 1467.
0: Yeah, so their family and faction's a bit leaderless at the moment, and Things might not have come down to that great an extent, though, because KKB doesn't have time for a formal election, any traditional ceremony at Morastena, or even an actual coronation. It's pretty much straight back to fighting as soon as KKB is back in the country. Or, you know, the fighting never actually stopped. He just steps into the fight against
1: Christian. No, it didn't stop. And after a while, it seems like the Oxenfairnas and the people loyal to them seem to never really have gone over to KKB's side anyway. They soon side with Christian after all.
0: Yeah, so they changed their minds pretty soon after.
1: (laughs) Yeah, for the next few years, fighting will sort of occur in peaks and troughs across Sweden, but it never really ceases. We won't go into it in too much detail, mainly because it's not that interesting and it's a lot of the same, you know, fighting interspersed with attempts at peace negotiations, usually with the Hansa acting as mediators, as they tend to do, but then those negotiations falling apart and fighting starting back again, and so on and so forth.
0: Yeah, I, we don't need to repeat ourselves many times about that. And broadly speaking, the fighting is done with King Christian, the Uxan foreigners, and the upper Swedish nobility on one side, supported by some elements of the border nobility – with KKB and his supporters, of which the Axelson tot family is the strongest, on the other side with the rest of the border nobility. In fact, the ties between KKB and the Axelson tots are tied even tighter in 1468, when KKB makes Ivar Axelson tot Eric's brother, his heir. Or rather, he makes it known that Ivar should be named regent in the event of KKB's death until the council can elect a new king. KKB makes these generous concessions to counteract Christian's intentions of regaining power in Sweden by trying to instigate a conflict between KKB and the Axelsons. So yeah, KKB realizes that if his party splits, he's more weak. So uh, yeah, he's trying to preempt any tactic from King Christian by bringing the Axelson tots into his sphere of influence even more.
1: Whilst we won't cover all this fighting, there are two events that are particularly interesting to mention. In the spring of 1469, whilst Christian is fighting Eva on Tot in the west of the country, the Oxenstiernas and their supporters initiate a renewed revolt against KKB after a period of being a bit ambiguous. A nobleman by the name of Erik Karlsson Vasa, a loyal Oxenstierna follower and brother of former rebel leader, bishop and short-term regent at the start of this episode, Shetil Karlsson Vasa, he declares himself Riksherwitzmann, the main military leader of the country and a post KKB actually held for a few years in the 1430s.
0: Eric and his force attacks a council meeting in Vardstainer that year, and takes two councillors prisoner. But notably, they also take KKP's daughter, who is Ivar axelsson Tot's wife, Magdalena, prisoner too. And Unfortunately, we don't know anything about the imprisonment, or how she was treated, or when she was released, but at a time when women are often absent from both the preserved records and later historical writing, we thought it worth mentioning the fact that she was captured. And this would mean that she was presumably there at the council meeting in some capacity too.
1: Yeah, I mean, if she's taken prisoner, it's likely that she was, if not present at the actual meeting, then present where the meeting was held. But another event that takes place in the summer of 1469 is that a peasant army that's loyal to KKB manages to not just take Axvald Castle, but completely destroy it. We've mentioned Axvall Castle several times on the podcast. It's situated in the county of Vestergötland, between the towns of Skara and Skövde, and it's been a real stronghold in the region since the 1200s.
0: The peasant force manages to not just attack it, but systematically and methodically destroy it, setting it on fire and cutting down people as they escaped. And they did it so much that the Vardstein and Abbey diary said that there wasn't a stone left afterwards, and this shocked the nobility. We did an entire episode on castles, episode 84, and we've mentioned them a lot on the podcast as they popped up throughout the Middle Ages. Castles, as we've seen, were the means through which the nobility and the king, using bailiffs and commanders, exerted local power. The castles were the source of their income since they used it to physically levy taxes on the people in the surrounding area and in times of war and conflict, castles were both the defence and the rallying points from which to attack other people. For the peasants, however, castles were the utmost symbol of oppressive power. This was where the bailiff, sometimes through the use of violence, forced them to hand over goods and income as these taxes, and in times of war this was where enemy forces attacked from, or attacked, and where they were often sieged and robbed, and the locals had to put up with all this fighting going on, and sometimes they had revenge enacted upon them as well as the locals living nearby these sources of opposing power. So. Was all going on around castles
1: the fact that a peasant force so thoroughly destroyed a castle like Axval made the nobility sit up and think about how safe they actually were behind those castle walls it probably also made KKB sit up and think about who he was allied with because as king he would also need to tax the peasants Castles won't disappear right away because of this one action, but their use will slowly change and some of them will be abandoned through the course of the rest of the Middle Ages.
0: Speaking of a peasant force destroying a castle, should we stop for a moment and go on a bit of a tangent away from kings and nobility and check in with what we might call the ordinary people, the peasants, labourers, townspeople and craftsmen and people like that?
1: Yes, let's definitely do that, because we promised at the beginning of the episode that we'd return to the fact that whilst all this fighting was going on, fighting between factions of the nobility, King Christian and KKB, whilst all that has been going on, an outbreak of the plague has hit Sweden.
0: It's easy to think that the plague was just something that happened in the 1340s and 50s when the Black Death was raging across Europe. But the fact is that outbreaks of plague occurred repeatedly in Europe and consequently in Sweden too throughout the Middle Ages. The last outbreak, or perhaps maybe the latest, uh, the most recent outbreak in Sweden occurred as late as 1710 to 1730, so not that long ago in the grand scheme of things.
1: The thing about infectious diseases is that they're to a certain extent democratic, in that they affect everyone, rich or poor, and that's definitely the case with the plague in the Middle Ages. Although the reason we know a bit more about the outbreak in 1465 is actually that a lot of the members of the nobility and clergy, like Shetil Karlsson Vasa, died from it, meaning that it makes it into historical records.
0: Yeah, so they're not democratic in the sense that, like, all the diseases sit down. It's like, I vote that Ebola goes to this country next. What do you say, cholera and uh, other infectious diseases?
1: That's a fun image to imagine. But no, I meant they're democratic in the sense that they affect everyone.
0: Okay, nice. I want to see this, like, disease council as they, they vote which disease goes where next um, where they did go as we know was Sweden and the Vardstainer diary notes from the year 1465 that there was a large famine in all of Sweden and many died many especially in the north also died from the plague so yeah the Vardstainer abbeys has come to their attention so it's pretty big deal and as if risking starvation or getting the plague wasn't enough we also know that outbreaks of dysentery smallpox, whooping cough and meat measles were all common at the time too.
1: So if you don't recognize those words, they're all medical terms that basically mean pooping yourself to death, dying from getting large bumps filled with thick fluid forming all over your body, coughing yourself to death, and dying from a fever while covered in red rashes. None of these are particularly fun to have
0: no they're not at all and especially if you had to make do with it when the treatment around at the time was various forms of herbalist medicine practiced at uh, the monastery or member or by members of your local community Interestingly, in Sweden, the people doing these practices, like wise women or medicine men and women, were much more tolerated in Sweden than they were on the rest of the European continent. There weren't really any large-scale witch hunts or witchcraft trials in the Middle Ages in Sweden. Um, That happened a few years later.
1: Yeah, a few hundred years later here, in fact. In spite of the many horrible ways you could die, the population of Sweden actually began a slow and steady increase in the 1460s. This can be seen in records of where people lived and which farms and land that paid taxes. In these records, we see that people were now moving back into areas and beginning to work lands and farms that had previously been abandoned.
0: Yeah, that were all abandoned during the Black Death. And in general it's hard to know how much the political turmoil, fighting within the nobility and struggles for the throne, affected the average person at this time. The likelihood is that it depended on who you were and where you were at that time. You know, it was all kicking off in Darlan most of the time, but not necessarily on the west coast. It's very much more likely that at certain points of time you're much more concerned with things closer to home, like trying to supplement a bad harvest by killing some wild game so your family doesn't starve whilst at another time you might be more directly affected by violence because you hear a rousing recruitment speech urging you to join a peasant rebellion, or perhaps your local area has been subjected to a new and particularly forceful bailiff who wants to collect the latest tax, though there's all manner of scenarios that could possibly affect you.
1: Exactly. One thing is pretty certain, though. People weren't as clueless about the world around them as we might think. We might think that, oh, a woman farm labourer back then would know nothing. She couldn't read or write. She only milked cows all day. How could she know about the world like I do, who can read news from all over the globe on a smartphone in my pocket? And sure, to some extent, that is the case. Farm laborers milking cows in Sweden in the 1460s wouldn't know what I know about what's going on in, say, English politics. But they also wouldn't be clueless about what's going on in their own country or even their own continent, and largely that's because of a very high church attendance at this time. We've talked a lot about how religious Sweden was in the Middle Ages, and the fact that the people belonged to the Catholic Church, which was a pan-European political as well as religious entity. And that meant that from the church pews, they'd hear about stuff coming from the Pope and from their own archbishop and local bishop, which wasn't just church stuff, but also included what we would call politics and news today.
0: And whilst the service itself was held in Latin, of which your cow-milking farm labourer probably didn't understand a single word of, what was said would be translated or interpreted to her on the Shirkbacke, the area outside the church where people would congregate to share what was going on in the local community and beyond. So yeah, I agree, it's easy to think of lower-class people in history as clueless and uninvolved in the political events that happened around them, and yes, much of their time was dedicated to the basic act of survival, and that makes their lives different from ours, but we should perhaps be careful before we assume they didn't know anything about what was going on, or you know, that they didn't have an opinion about who was running the country.
1: Absolutely. But for now, back to the timeline. We've now weaved our way through a few years of confused fighting, and we've arrived to the spring of 1470. KKB is in his early 60s at this point. He's been married twice and widowed twice. Interestingly, the same number of times that he's been kicked off the Swedish throne probably a coincidence but he is now king for the third time. With his two wives he's had no less than 10 children. Five sons who all died as small children and five daughters who all survived into adulthood or at least into their late teens but of whom only two are alive at this point and that's the previously mentioned Magdalena and her older sister Christina.
0: We don't know exactly when, but we know that around this time KKB marries for the third time, just to match the amount of times he's been king for. And for the last couple of years he's had a thriller called Christina Abraham's daughter, who is likely Finnish and someone he met when living on his Finnish estates. We've talked about the concept of thrillers before, and it's been around in the Nordics since the Viking Age, and is basically a legalized form of legitimized mistresses. It could also be a term to denote a relationship that just hadn't been sanctioned by the church through marriage and that was likely the case with KKB and Christina. There's no indication that he was with her whilst married to his second wife but rather she was someone he'd met later and well just shacked up with to use a modern term.
1: But now he's looking to legitimize things with Christina and so they get married. Historians usually see two reasons for this. First, a few years ago, they've had a son, Carl, together, and whilst he's still young, he has at least survived infancy. And secondly, KKB is not feeling very well. Perhaps the years of exile, return, exile, return, kinging, rebelling, uh, shaking all around, well, it's taking its toll on him. In fact, he's so unwell that just a few days after the wedding, he revises his will. He leaves a few of his estates to his daughters, but the vast majority of his inheritance goes to Christina, who can now rightfully use the title Queen as his legitimate wife, and to young Carl. The boy also gets to inherit his father's sword and scepter, which some historians have seen as an indication that KKB wanted his son to be the heir of not just his wealth, but also to the throne, since sword and scepter are the symbols of power which is of course not how it works anyway because Sweden is an elected monarchy but yeah some historians have viewed that as KKB's desire for his son to take over.
0: In the political turmoil that was raging across Sweden, any talk of legitimizing an heir, especially one that was just a child, was likely premature. And there's no record of Karl being introduced at the council as a potential heir to the throne. The last thing KKB does is name his nephew, the young nobleman Sten Störger, the executor of his will and guardian of his wife and son. Just on a side note, in spite of his surname, Sten Stöhrer is not related to Niels Stöhrer, the nobleman loyal to KKB who was rousing the peasants in Dalarna to rebel and uh, helped KKB come back to the throne.
1: No, he's not. But he's about to become an important person in the story. So just make a mental note of Sten Stöhrer for now.
0: It's a good thing that KKB got all of his affairs in order at this time with the wedding and the will and all that because on the 15th of May 1470 he dies at Stockholm Castle. He's buried at the Greyfriars Abbey and today his resting place is in front of the main altar in the Ridderholm church along with a long line of other monarchs yet to be born.
1: He's been on the throne, he's been off the throne, he's rebelled, he's been rebelled against, he's been exiled, he's come back, but now he is no more. Or, as the Swedish history podcast, Kungar och Krieg, Kings and Wars, they summarised his life and time in power with the words, it was chaos when he came, it was chaos whilst he was there, and it was chaos when he left.
0: Yeah, that's not a bad description of the whole period, really, because it's definitely not a stable kingdom that KKB is leaving behind him. But more on that next time. For now, let's finish this episode by saying a few words about the man himself. With the three goes on the throne that he's had, he shares the honour of being the person who's been king of Sweden the most times, and he shares it with none other than King Eric of Pomerania. But unlike Eric, who came from a royal dynasty and whose way to the throne was paved by his great-aunt and foster mother, Queen Margareta, KKB came from a wealthy noble family, but wasn't from a royal dynasty. He made his way to the throne by use of his own power instead.
1: In all the research we've done, there are a few words that are constantly repeated when talking about KKB. Ruthless, ambitious, contentious, power-hungry, and self-serving.
0: They're not the nicest words to hear when reading your own arbitrary, I suppose. But it is clear that KKB wasn't a nice man personally, and historians continue to debate whether or not he was a good or effective king. Yes, in an era of incredible political turmoil and violence, he did get to be king three times, but that also meant he was kicked out twice. He wasn't just king, though. When we look at his whole career, he was regent, he was a military commander and a member of the Swedish council. All in all, he spent more than 30 years at the very top of political life, which at the time is no small feat in its own.
1: In the end, whether or not he was a good king or efficient ruler depends on what criteria you judge that against. He certainly didn't play nice and didn't seek compromise, quite the opposite, in fact. He made himself unpopular with both the church and part of the nobility, which made it difficult for him to rule effectively and even difficult to stay in power. After all, he spent a lot of time getting the crown and trying to hold on to it, and less time actually governing. He didn't sit and spend 25 years on boring but productive things like legal reform, the economy and foreign trade. He spent 30 years fighting and fighting and fighting.
0: And there's no doubt he knew the political game too, though, because domestically and on the European continent, he was involved in scheming and peddling of schemes. When he was in exile in Prussia, he meddled heavily in conflicts there too, and back at home he was part of the continuous internal struggle in the Kalmar Union. He was also a master propagandist, which is evident not least in the production of the Karl Chronicle, which we've mentioned a few times, a contemporary record that he ordered be made. It starts to be written in the 1430s and continues to be produced until 1452. It's a historical, in huge quotation marks, record of the time from the 1390s to 1452. And its only goal is to praise KKB and put him in a good light and justify his position of power.
1: It's perfect that you mention the Carl Chronicle, because when that ends, another chronicle, which is just as tendentious begins, and that's the Sture Chronicle. The listeners have already made a note of the name Sten Sture, so the fact that there's now a Sture Chronicle is just another hint at where we're heading. But for now, that's all we've got from A Flat Pack History of Sweden.
0: Yes, uh, this will be the last episode for a brief period of time. Uh, Don't worry, don't worry, we're not stopping the podcast, but uh, we just need to uh, sort a few things out because the history is finally catching up with us. As you've probably noticed, things are getting a lot more complicated and there are far more sources for us to read and we know a lot more about the protagonists of the story now. In a few years' time, one character in particular will rock up on the scene and change Sweden for so we need to do justice to both him, uh, sadly, yeah, is a man, um, and the background to his appearance in the timeline. So it's a, we're coming up to a very big moment in Swedish history.
1: Yeah, and that means a lot of research for us, coming at a time when we've actually been very busy with our real lives or our lives outside of podcasting. We've had family visits, work on the flat, and also our day jobs.
0: Yeah, it's been a very busy few months, and that means we're now in the position where we're sort of recording and editing episodes just a few days before they're due to be released, uh, which isn't always fun, and uh, it won't be very helpful with the upcoming episodes when there's lots of stuff to talk about.
1: So we've taken the executive decision to take November and use it as a research and writing month. Unfortunately, that means no episodes released in November but we'll be back with a bang on the 3rd of December and a month with three regular episodes in it and lots of cool information to come about Swedish history.
0: Yeah, I mean, it always feels a bit bad to have to skip a release. I think we've only done it once so far in nearly four years. Um, and we know that lots of people love listening live and sort of as we release them and can't wait to hear more of the story. And we can't wait to read more and tell you all about it. And that obviously makes us really happy when so many of you are excited. But we do need to make sure we do this part of the story justice. And uh, that means we just need a little bit more preparation um, than we really have time for at the moment to uh, stick to the regular
1: Yeah, we hope that's okay with you. We'll continue to post on social media and we have a load of photos from our recent trips to post. So if you're missing your Swedish history fix, check out our social media and we'll make sure to post stuff there.
0: Exactly. Uh, and that's on uh, X or Twitter, Facebook, and now even Blue Sky, if you're one of the, uh, I think, few people who use that. But uh, we're there too. We, of course, have our website, A Flatpack History of Sweden, and you can write us an email to flatpackhistorysweden@gmail.com at gmail.com to maybe uh, keep us company whilst we're uh, doing this research and writing.
1: And so that's all for now. See you in December. Take care and goodbye.
0: Hey då!